It's my honor to introduce Paul Taylor to you this evening. Uh, Paul has spent the weekend with us, and uh, so I, I can assure you we're on the same page. Paul has a passion for apologetics, particularly in the area of creation versus evolution. Um, I have a passion for apologetics because I feel it's important for, particularly for the next generation to understand the battle that we're in. It's not science versus religion. It's a war between two different worldviews, and that's a, uh, the worldview of naturalism and the worldview of supernaturalism. And that's what the battle is. And uh, Paul has um, been speaking on this topic related to this for, he says, about 35 years. And he's so young yet, I say, when did you start? Well, he was a teenager when he started doing this, and he'll fill you in on some of the background on that. He's worked with Answers in Genesis for a long time in the U.K., ran that organization over there. And then he worked with the uh, Creation uh, Today in Pensacola, Florida. And now he's up in the northwest where he feels at home because the weather is, is more like it was in London uh, than it was in Pensacola. So, uh, Paul, why don't you come and share what's on your heart? It's been a joy to um, be uh, in this area uh, over the weekend and to uh, uh, and to share fellowship uh, with the with the Licklamas. That was wonderful. And uh, we have some um, books and DVDs out there. If you have a look at, uh, uh, I've got some there, and Heinz has got some as well. And so have a look at both tables, please, uh, because they are different. Uh, if I can just let you know a little bit about some of the things that you'll see on my table. I have a commentary on Genesis chapters 1 to 11 called The Six Days of Genesis. Now, I did have um, a DVD series that went with that, but I've sold out of those. So, um, But uh, that, that's really, it really sort of condenses all my teaching into sort of biblical order on the book of Genesis. Um, then I ha- have a book called Truth, Lies, and Science Education there, because I was a school teacher for many years in, uh, in England and in Wales, and this is really based on my experience and my research on those, on those things. Uh, it just is a history of uh, Western educational thought, how science education in particular developed uh, in the West, and uh, just looks at some of the, uh, some of the principles behind that. Uh, my biography of Charles Darwin, co-written by myself and Ian McNaughton, who is the chairman of Answers in Genesis in the UK, um, that's uh, probably the only uh, creationist uh, complete biography of Charles Darwin out at the moment, so uh, that might be of interest to you. Uh, this book has got a very odd title. It's called Itching Ears. So I wonder if anyone knows where that particular title comes from in the Bible. It comes from Second Timothy chapter 4. Look it up, okay? And the point of this book is, to uh, because I kept hearing one or two creation speakers saying, well, every major Christian doctrine is actually based on Genesis and founded on the truth of Genesis. And I thought, is that actually true? So I went through some of the major Christian doctrines. It's not a systematic theology, but it contains a chapter on the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, doctrines to do with sin and death, doctrines of salvation, of faith, and of the second coming of Jesus. And uh, it just looks, it just shows that those doctrines are all based on the truth of Genesis. So that might be of interest to you. Uh, I mentioned the Darwin biography. I've also got a documentary film there as well, which I filmed for um, a, a 
a Christian television channel in Britain. Um, so there's a TV documentary film on the life of Charles Darwin. Hopefully you might find those of use and of help to you. Okay? And if you want more, then you can look at our website and you can come and visit our centre because it's not far away. It's less than two hours drive away. My wife's made sure that there are comfy chairs there so that you can, uh, you can uh, enjoy uh, being with us, spending time with us. And uh, I've been asked to talk this evening on the subject creation or evolution. Who cares? You know, what's the point? Why should we even bother about this subject? Okay. I'll just introduce you to um, a few people first, though. This is my family. Um, so there they all are. Uh, myself and my wife and five children, so you immediately count up six young people. Okay, I'll come to that in a moment. Over on the left um, is uh, our son, Joe. He's 15. And the young man next to him, who's, um, who's 20, he's the only one who's not our, uh, our child, but he soon will be in a sense, because um, that's Joshua. He's the only, Amer- uh, he's the only American citizen uh, here. He's, in the, he's just joined the U.S. Navy. He's training there. And uh, he will become my son-in-law in just a few weeks' time when he marries our daughter, Bethany, next, next to him. Okay? So uh, then the, the older children all live in uh, Britain still. Uh, they came over. This is a scene from Pensacola. So this is when they were over visiting last June. So it's Jack, who is a forensic scientist. Gemma, who has a first-class degree in evolutionary zoology. And uh, there's myself and my wife and my son, Adam, who is actually um, a no-mean creation speaker himself and uh, uh, a junior leader in his church. Um, in, uh, in South Wales. And there's my wife and myself uh, with Mount St. Helens in the background on a cloudy day, uh, with the mountains partly obscured, and uh, you'd be very welcome to come and visit us at the Mount St. Helens Creation Centre, which is there. It's easy to find. You just drive southwards along Interstate uh, 5 until you come to Junction 49. Okay, Junction 49. And then you turn off and you turn left, and you go on State Highway 504. And the milepost markings are very clearly marked on the right-hand side of the road. We are between mileposts 9 and 10. So after you've seen milepost 9, you look for our centre. That's nine miles along the road. We're about nine and a half miles along the road. So uh, you'd be very welcome to come and to spend time with us. And uh, you know, like I say, if you've driven that far, you want to spend time, so you will find comfy chairs there. We do have a small auditorium. We can put on presentations and, and short films, and we can arrange tours of the valley and up to the mountain too, although the last eight miles of the road are closed at the moment. I have no idea why, because there's no snow. But they've closed the last eight miles of the road up to Johnson Ridge, and they tell me that they won't reopen it until the second week of May at least. But so there it is. It's, uh, um, uh, you'd be very welcome to come to the centre. My wife will probably put, a, put the kettle on and make you a cup of English tea. Okay. If you want to find out more about our centre and how to get there, have a look at our website, mshcreationcentre.org mshcreationcenter.org Right, creation or evolution? Who cares? Why should we care? What's the point of talking about creation or evolution? Why do we need to do it? Because after all, shouldn't we just get along? Can't we agree to disagree on what things are non-essential? And surely the whole creation issue is non-essential, isn't it? Because after all, it does not say in the New Testament... um, 
that all those who call on the name of the Lord and believe in a literal six-day creation shall be saved. It doesn't say that, does it? It just says all those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is surely a non-essential. Why are we bothering to talk about it? Many people say that to me. They, they say, you're just being divisive. One uh, church leader in Britain has even wrote, written in a book that he, that he published to say that people like myself are an embarrassment to the gospel, going around telling people that the theory of evolution is not true. We should be concentrating on other things like feeding the hungry and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just tell them about Jesus. That's what matters. Uh, these things don't matter. Well, I'm going to convince you that it does matter, that this is an important topic, and that it is reasonable and rational to believe in, in Genesis. And since we've mentioned uh, Jesus, and we've mentioned um, what, that we should perhaps just preach Jesus and not worry about this, then I think it's important to have a look at what Jesus thought about this issue. Because if Jesus actually had something to say on this issue, then I think that needs to be listened to. And we need to actually concentrate on that. And you will find that Jesus did have some things to say on this particular issue. So let's start with the foundations. Because the foundations are, after all, important. Let's deal with the foundational issues. Foundations are important for a house. Um, the foundations are mentioned in the book of Psalms when we read, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Because as people of God, we have foundations. We need foundations. And we, we build our Christian lives on foundations. So we'd better see what those foundations are and how they matter. Here's a typical house in, uh, in England. And uh, uh, this photograph of a typical house in England, as you can see. But if it didn't have any foundations, you know that it would be in danger. Actually, I was once a member of a church uh, uh, to the east of Manchester in the north of England and we uh, needed to extend the church building and it was an old chapel, it was an old uh, congregational chapel and had been there for a couple of hundred years and when they wanted to extend it they discovered that the chapel had no foundations. They'd have been built without foundations. And so the first thing that they had to do, it cost an awful lot more money, but the first thing that they had to do was to dig holes under the chapel to be able to put foundations in under the walls to prop it up. It was very, very, uh, very important to do that. Otherwise, it would have fallen down. Well, many people say our foundations are our faith after all, but other people have got other things to say on the subject of faith. For example... Richard Dawkins. Have you heard of Richard Dawkins, by the way? Someone said to me this morning, people haven't heard of Richard Dawkins, although when they said that, all the rest of his family said, yes, they have. You know, they, and he said, well, no, we haven't, uh, people haven't heard of Richard Dawkins. P children in public schools won't have heard of Richard Dawkins. And all his children who went to public schools said, yes, we have. <laughs> been told. So uh, Richard Dawkins is probably the world's best-known atheist. He is a radical evangelist for atheism. And he, although he's English, he regularly comes to the United States. He frequently does speaking tours of the United States, trying to convince people to be atheists. He's a former uh, professor of biology at Oxford University. And uh, he said that faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. So if you have faith here tonight, it's despite the evidence. It's in the teeth of the evidence. You are fooling yourself as far as uh, uh, Professor Dawkins is concerned. 
Now, it's interesting that that's the attitude he takes on the subject of whether we have faith in God or not, but he didn't take the same attitude when, in a TV interview, he was asked, what evidence do you have for the theory of evolution? And he said, we don't need evidence, we know it to be true. But the subject of evidence is quite important, and uh, I appeared on a a radio programme along with with him. Um, Radio programmes are very... uh, There's a lot more radio programmes in in Britain than there are in America, a lot of sort of talking radio programmes, interviews, and so on. And um, they can be quite deceptive, because you're listening to these programmes and you think there are people discussing things on the radio. They must be in the same room. They're not. For many, many years, I'd been on programs with Richard Dawkins and never met him because he was on the phone and I was on the phone. That's the way the BBC worked. Uh, They always phoned people up to interview. So I was on this interview uh, uh, along with Richard Dawkins and he said that, uh, um, he said, the creationist speaker, because he would never refer to me by name, said the creationist speaker has no evidence that uh, the world came into being 6,000 years ago. We need evidence. We, do, we believe things because of hard evidence. Well, do we have scientific evidence that the world was created 6,000 years ago? Of course, I was able to challenge him back and ask, has he got scientific evidence that the world came into being 4.6 billion years ago, which is what he believes. He believes the Earth coalesced out of stardust 4.6 billion years ago. Has he got scientific evidence for that? And of course, the answer to that is no, as we will see in a moment. But what evidence do I have? Well, it is actually true that I do not have scientific evidence, because scientific evidence should be something that uh, I can do as an experiment and repeat it. If I do the same experiment... Uh, uh, as you do, on two, on two different days, using the same um, apparatus, using the same conditions, then I should get the same answer. That's what science is about, okay? I should be able to reproduce an experiment. But I cannot reproduce the creation of the world. And I can't even go and see it, because I'm not Doctor Who, I don't have a TARDIS to go back and uh, find out. So I cannot produce you scientific evidence. However, that does not mean I can't produce evidence as you'll see in a moment. For example, let me give you a different example. How could I prove scientifically that I was born in Manchester in the north of England 27 years ago? (laughs) So, people over here are are laughing in disbelief. Can you believe that? Okay, Uh, well, all right, it was a bit longer ago than that. Okay, let's try again. How can I prove scientifically that I was born in Manchester in the north of England in 1961? Okay, it was a bit more than 27 years ago. Well, actually, I cannot do a scientific experiment to prove this. I can't get you to measure the wrinkles on my face and see how fast they're changing and sort of work them back in time and then try and calculate when I was born. That doesn't happen, does it? There is no scientific evidence that I can present to prove to you that I was born in Manchester in 1961. In fact, I can't even produce an eyewitness because both my parents are dead and the midwife is quite elderly, so I'm assuming she's dead now. And uh, there's no eyewitness accounts I can give you. So there's no scientific evidence I can produce, but that doesn't mean there's no evidence. I can produce evidence. What's the evidence I can produce? Birth certificates, yes. Because most people can get hold of birth certificates, can't they? Um, I used to do a joke at that point, but my wife told me I'm not allowed to tell it. So, um, 
Birth certificates are, are evidence, but they're not scientific evidence. They are documentary evidence, okay? I've got the documents that proves, the legal documents that proves that I was born when and where I said. So, what about the uh, beginning of the earth then? Richard Dawkins says that the earth began 4.6 billion years ago. I say that it was created 6,000 years ago. Neither of us have the science. Does anyone have the documentary evidence? Does anyone have the legal birth certificate? Yes, I do. It's here. That's the issue. Because that is actually our, our eyewitness account. Now, please don't underestimate this. This is an eyewitness account. You're supposed to accept a reliable eyewitness. Who is a more reliable eyewitness to the event than God himself, who is inspired in his word? That's important. Now, evidence requires a judge. I used to spend a lot of time giving talks where I would present people with a lot of scientific evidence to try and persuade them that the Bible was true and that God exists. That's what I used to do. And I did it for the best of motives. And there are a lot of creation speakers around who do precisely that. They will present lots of evidence to you to prove to you that the Bible is true, to try to prove to you that the Bible is true and that God exists. But listen, there is a problem with that approach. And here's the problem. Where do we normally present evidence? In a court. We present evidence in a court. Who do we present evidence to? The judge. So if I am presenting evidence to the atheist to try and prove to the atheist that God exists and that the Bible is true, who am I making into the judge? I am making the atheist into the judge. You've all watched uh, legal programs from, the, from Britain, have you? Have they? They wear, they wear silly wigs in Britain. Judges wear strange wigs in, in Britain. I'm turning the atheist into the judge. And who's on trial? God is on trial. Now please just pause for a moment and think about the import for this. If I spend time now trying to present evidence to you to prove to you that the Bible is true and that God exists... I make the atheist into the judge and I put God on trial. And yet that is precisely what the majority of apologists in this country and around the world are doing all the time. And I've heard them say it. I've heard famous apologists say from platforms, I can prove to you that God exists without using the Bible. Why would I want to prove to you that God exists without using the Bible? Why would I want to do that? C.S. Lewis had it right. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia book, said this about his faith. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. By it I see everything else. Our faith is to be what colours the way that we see everything. If I wore rose-coloured spectacles, then the world would look rose-coloured. If I view the world through the pages of the Bible, then I will see the world according to the worldview and the opinions that God has set down for us. I am not meant to be a Christian just on Sunday. 
I am not meant to be a Christian just in church. I am meant to be a Christian during the week, in my work day. I'm meant to be a Christian when I'm behind the wheel of the car. Is Jesus still in the car when you're driving over the speed limit? I don't know, but it's funny. He's always at the other end when I get there. I'm meant to be a Christian when I'm in school, when I'm in high school, when I'm doing homework assignments, when I'm reacting in the the way that I speak to teachers, to people in authority. We're meant to be Christians in, in our lives all the time. The book of Hebrews puts it like this when it talks about faith. It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. It's by faith that we understand how God made the world. But that faith is not just something vague, although it it shouldn't be. Now, if your faith is something vague, you have problems, you need to think it through. But our faith is not meant to be something vague. Our faith is meant to have substance. And you do not need evidence for your faith. I don't need evidence for my faith. My faith is the evidence. My faith is the evidence. I showed you a photograph of my family before, my wife and my children. Supposing I now said to you, I have just discovered that none of them exist. You'd think there was something strange. How can you possibly be married to someone all that time and then discover that they don't exist, that they're not real? Can you imagine anyone saying something so strange? And yet that's precisely what many people say about God. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I know him, but I'm not really sure whether he exists or not. There are people who say that all the time, and I come across people, and you know, they're challenged. Can you be absolutely sure that God exists? And say, no, we can't, we can't be absolutely sure of anything. Are you sure you can't be absolutely sure of anything? Faith is your evidence. And if you're in that position, I need to just shake you up a bit tonight, because maybe, maybe that means you don't really know God at all. You see, I can no more deny God than I can deny the existence of my wife. My wife's real because I know her. God's real because I know him. This whole issue is not actually about different facts. It's not about searching through the world to try and find evidence for evolution and evidence for creation and then getting you to weigh up whether which of those evidences is better and trying to come to a decision. It's not about that. It's actually about the same evidence. There's only one lot of science in the world and we have to weigh up whether that... We have to view that evidence through a lens, through a biblical lens or through a worldly lens. Every piece of scientific evidence we have should be viewed through the lens of the Bible. The alternative is to view that evidence through the lens of man's theories. And if you view the same piece of evidence through different lenses, you will see the evidence differently. Because it's not about the evidence. It's about the foundation that you have. The foundation that you start with. That's what matters. It's not about science, because there are two different sorts of science. There's observational science, that's the science that we look at in the laboratory. And then there is historical science, 
that's things that we cannot actually reproduce. These are one-off events in the past that we are making a conjecture about when we were not actually there. So historical science is not really science in the sense of experiments. You know, I, I was a school teacher in public schools in England and in Wales for many years, and I arrived at one school in South Wales where I, was a, where I was an assistant head of science, and I spoke to the head of science there, who was an atheist and a communist, and I noticed that the biology laboratories and the physics laboratories were in one part of the school. Sorry, the chemistry laboratories and the physics laboratories were together in one part of the school, and the biology laboratories were on the opposite side of the school. And this, I said to this atheist, uh, this atheist head of science, I said to him, why is it that the chemistry labs and the physics labs are here in one place? And I was a chemistry teacher and the head of science was a chemistry teacher too. And I said, why is it that the biology labs are over the other side? Why is there that separation? He said, it's very simple. It's because in the chemistry labs and in the physics labs, we do real science, but that lot over there, they teach fairy tales. Interesting. <laughs> an atheist and a communist who said that to me. So, there's uh, many a true word spoken in jest, <laughs> I often think. Well, observational science, as I said, is about what we can actually see. But you see, the Bible doesn't start with the scientific facts. Have you noticed that? The Bible does not start with a high school essay offering you the arguments as to why God exists. Instead, the Bible starts with the words, In the beginning, God and then launches into how God made the world. And this is interesting because there are many people who tell me, well, science tells us how the world was made. Genesis chapter 1 tells us why the world was made. Well, there are things in the Bible that will tell you why the world was made, but I do want you to notice that in Genesis chapter 1, there is absolutely nothing whatsoever said about why the world is made. Have you noticed that? Genesis chapter 1 says nothing about why the world is made. It simply tells you how the world is made. From an eyewitness account, God himself. So, the Bible starts by assuming the existence of God without trying to argue for the existence of God. In fact, the Bible has only one thing to say about the possible non-existence of God. And this is so important that the Bible repeats it. In Psalm 14, verse 1, and then again in Psalm 53, verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what the Bible says about the possible non-existence of God. That it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Again, on a radio program with Richard Dawkins, and he, sa and he said to me, Are you telling me that I'm a fool then? When we went through that. You know, this man who's got so many degrees and PhDs and so on. Are, are you telling me that I'm a fool? And I said, of course I'm not telling you I'm, you're a fool. I wouldn't dare tell you that you're a fool. It's the Bible that's telling you you're a fool. <laughs> there is another creation myth around. And this other creation myth says that in the beginning, there was nothing. And that nothing suddenly exploded. Do you know that creation myth? It's called the Big Bang Theory. Have you heard of that? 
Some Christians actually think that that's the best way of explaining things, as if, uh, as if that's what the Bible teaches. It isn't. This is not though, what the Bible actually says. Let's have a look at what some scientists who believe in the Big Bang Theory say about it. Heather Cooper says this. She says, it was a nothing so profound that it defies human comprehension. Is that a scientific statement? That doesn't sound like a scientific statement to me. Brad Lemley said that to the average person it might seem obvious that nothing can happen in nothing, but to a quantum physicist, nothing is in fact something. (laughs) Is that a statement of science? In fact, Brad Lemley went on to say this. He said, quantum theory also holds that a vacuum, like atoms, is subject to quantum uncertainties. This means that things can materialize out of the vacuum, although they tend to vanish back into it quickly. And this phenomenon has never been observed directly. Okay, now that's obviously using a lot of long words because scientists love to try and confuse you by using long words. So let me try and translate this into English for you. What he's actually saying is things appear out of nothing and then they vanish back into nothing. And oh, by the way, nobody has ever seen any of that happen. If you haven't seen it happen, is it science? No, it is not observational science, because you can't do it, you can't repeat it. This is not a statement of science. This, from this very clever PhD physicist, is a statement of religious belief, that he believes things appear out of nothing and vanish back into them, because nobody has ever seen it happen. And it seems to work with some of his mathematical formulas that he's made up, but it has no bearing on what is real. And we are so often bamboozled by the clever scientists who have their clever words. And when you actually look at the clever things they say, however intelligent they are, the Bible calls them fools. Let's have a look at DNA. DNA is a molecule in your body. And what most people know these days, you've probably been taught this in high school, DNA contains information. It contains a lot of information. And that information is expressed in the form of four letters due to the base sugar pairs in it, which are usually represented by the letters A, T, G, and C. And there are whole words and sentences that can be built up out of DNA. And the amount of information contained in the DNA in your body, in each cell in your body, is sufficient, if it was typed out with a ten-point font face, it is sufficient to fill up pages, letter pages, enough to get a pile of pages from here to the moon. There is a lot of information. And many people know that, but I wonder if you knew that the information was even more complicated than that, because the information in DNA is actually in chapters. So you can imagine an entire chapter. Imagine a chapter in my book. Imagine that in my book I've got a chapter here which tells you um, how, uh, how education came about in the Western world. But then imagine that I'd done something very clever, and I said to you that if you look at the back of that chapter and read every word backwards from the end back to the beginning, then that chapter actually tells us something uh, about, um, uh, gives you a biology syllabus in the opposite direction, okay? That you can read it backwards and get one lot of information, and then you can read it forwards and get a different lot of information from the same text. That would be impossible. Can you imagine me doing that? It would be beyond my intelligence to be able to produce a chapter that read one thing one way and another thing the other way and perfectly with all the letters in the right place. But that's precisely what DNA does. 
And people want to tell you that that information came about by chance. I've seen school teachers trying to illustrate this point by passing around a bag of Scrabble letters and the children pick out letters from the bag of Scrabble letters and it's all random until eventually one pupil picks out a C and the next one an A, the next one a T and the teacher stops and says, there you are, information. Information has come from nothing. It's the word cat. C-A-T spells cat. Problem. Doesn't spell cat in Dutch, does it? Doesn't spell cat in German, doesn't spell cat in French, doesn't spell cat. If you were in Greek, it wouldn't even, you wouldn't even use those letters. The letters are the wrong shape. It would be a different alphabet. In other words, you, you can only read the word cat because you've got the language in you to be able to read it. And in the same way, the DNA only gives you information because there are structures in your body that have the language to read that DNA and decode it and understand the information. And how does that, how do those information readers get there and get their language? Well, from other molecules of DNA, of course. It's all circular. It goes round and round and round. This is the amount of cleverness that there is there. And people say that this could come about by chance. It simply does not make sense. In fact, it's a little bit like this. Information doesn't actually be, isn't actually held in the material that, uh, that the information is on. It's not a function of the material. For example, if I had a blank CD, supposing I put a blank CD down on this pulpit, and by the time I finished this lecture, I then took that blank CD and we got an empty computer, a brand new computer, and put that blank CD, and we found that the blank CD had magically turned itself into a copy of Windows, Microsoft Windows, so that we could program the computer with an operating system. Would you be surprised? And yet one molecule of DNA has far more information in it than a CD of Windows, Microsoft Windows. To get the Microsoft Windows onto the blank CD, you would have to either be a programmer to program it in again from scratch, or you'd have to have a copying program that could copy it from somewhere else, wouldn't you? Either way, the information's got to be put in there by someone intelligent, okay? Now, just by the way, that may be the last occasion that you will hear Microsoft Windows used as an example of intelligent design. <laughs> but they tell us that this thing, this can come about easily. For example, this high school textbook tells us that originally the world was a molten ball and then eventually volcanic action produced oceans and then life came out of the oceans and then eventually life crawled out onto the land all by itself and then uh, eventually it was, it was able to evolve into us. And the reason why all that works is because all the elements needed to evolve into simple cells were already there. Have you heard that? You may have been taught this in high school. It's to do with an experiment that you may have heard of called the Miller-Urey experiment. The idea is that you've got an atmosphere in there which they tell us is the early atmosphere of the world containing methane, ammonia and hydrogen and then they put water vapour in. So the only oxygen in there is already combined in water molecules. And then what happens is they pass electricity through that mixture and they condense the mixture and they take, they take some chemicals out for analysis. And they say it contains amino acids. And amino acids are the building blocks of protein and proteins are the building blocks of life. So therefore, life can come about by chance, by itself, in a random experiment. Have you, do you remember learning that in high school? I, I remember being taught that, and a lot of people have seen that. And when I was a teacher, this was being taught to pupils in school. 
Why are those gases placed in there? They tell us that's the early atmosphere and there could not be any oxygen, any elemental oxygen in the early atmosphere. Why not? Because if there was any elemental oxygen in the early atmosphere, immediately all the amino acids would break up and you wouldn't get any. So, I want you to notice that the atmosphere is chosen because that's the, uh, that's the gases that are likely to produce amino acids. So since we've chosen the gases that are likely to produce amino acids, it's not that surprising that they produce amino acids, is it? This experiment is a circular experiment. But it gets worse than that because the amino acids produced have an interesting property. They are, they are what are called chiral molecules. Now, I could go on a bunny trial and explain what chirality is, but this is not a, a chemistry lesson, so I'm not going to. Just for the moment, take it from me that they are mirror images. You can have right-handed molecules and you can have left-handed molecules, okay? Uh, those are the two types of amino acids that you get, right-handed and left-handed. And this experiment will produce a 50-50 mixture of both right-handed and left-handed molecules. And that's logical, isn't it? You would expect that. Half and half mixed with the two. Problem. Living chemicals contain only the left-handed ones. The right-handed ones don't work. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen with this experiment? It's not possible. There's nothing in that experiment that explains how you could get just the left-handed ones and not the right-handed ones. It doesn't happen. But there's a little bit more to it than that, because actually, just supposing the experiment had worked and a blob of green slime jumped out of the flask at the bottom and shouted, I think, therefore I am. Would that prove that life can come from nothing? No. Because that experiment was remarkably intelligently designed, wasn't it? Not only that, but actually, I'm not that impressed by an experiment that works by somebody putting the glassware together. I'd be more impressed if they just threw the glassware about over the desk, over the laboratory desk, and expected the glassware to put itself together. In fact, I'd go a stage further. I think they should have just sprinkled sand on the desk and expect the sand to turn itself into glass and then make the glassware and put the experiment together by itself. Because that's what they're expecting us to believe. That's the only way that we could get from inorganic molecules to sophisticated living organisms with DNA that carries information. And I hope you realise that the simplest possible cell is exceptionally complicated. The simplest possible cell has more mechanisms in it than your average industrial-sized city today. Well, let's have a look at the other evidence that they produced then. Here's a, a life-size model of a blue whale taken in the Natural History Museum in, in London. There's the blue whale, and there it is compared in size to um, an elephant and a hippopotamus. So it's a big creature, okay? As you well know, that creature evolved from one of these. You've been taught that, haven't you? A land animal looking like a small dog called a mesonychid. I kid you not, there's the, here's the board in the Natural History Museum. Fossil evidence suggests that whales and dolphins evolved from a group of mammals that lived on land, the mesonychids. That's what fossil evidence suggests. Let's have a look at the fossil evidence that they offer and how it suggests it. On the left, we have a mesonychid with two nostrils on the end of its snout. In the middle, we have an ambulocetus which is a transitional form, they tell us, between the mesonychid and the whale. And it's got two nostrils quite close together, halfway up its snout. And on the right, we have a fossilized dolphin. 
And so you can see from the evidence there that the nostrils are gradually moving up the snout and joining together to form a blowhole on the top there. It does not convince you. We all now believe in evolution, so we can all close up and go home, okay? I've just proved the Bible's not true. Now, let's look again. Which is the oldest fossil there, do you think? I would suggest that you probably think the one on the left is the oldest fossil. Would that be right? It isn't, even by the evolutionary dates. It's the one in the middle that's the oldest. How did they get around that one? Because they put it in the middle. (laughs) The answer is, I kid you not, they've got error bars, which are not symmetrical on the dates here, these smudges that you can see, So they say that this particular creature was one of the very last of the Mesonychids, this fossil, and this one was one of the very first of the Ambulocetuses. So they arranged the error bars so that they overlap, so that this one is supposed to have come first, even though that particular specimen actually came from after, uh, even in evolutionary years, after the one in the middle. Why have they arranged them in that order? Why have they done that fiddle factor? It's obvious why because they believe in the theory of evolution. They have arranged these fossils in order of how they think they evolve. And then they use that evidence to uh, to try and prove to you that evolution is true. Do you understand the lack of logic in that way of doing things? You assume evolution to prove evolution. That's what's known as a circular argument. It's circular reasoning based on a faulty presupposition. It's the same sort of circular reasoning that Dawkins uses in order to prove that God could not have made the universe. In his famous book, The God Delusion, this is his proof that God did not create the universe. Creative intelligence is being evolved, necessarily arrive late in the universe, and therefore cannot be responsible for designing it. That proves it, doesn't it? Look again. He has assumed evolution to prove evolution. It's circular reasoning. Look for the subtlety of this. You know, young people in high school, you need to follow this. You need to see this in the textbooks that you are reading because your textbooks are full of it. They are full of this. They are full of circular reasoning being offered to you as as if it was evidence for evolution when it is not. The evidence, the logic in the Bible is much more sensible. For example, the Apostle Paul says this, uh, comparing Jesus to Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then a bit later he says, For if by the one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's logic, and it's impeccable. One sinful man's life brought death. One sinless man's death brought life. Now, I prefer that logic to the logic of the evolutionist. But, you know, there are some people who say, well, can't we combine the two? Can't we believe that God made things through evolution? God could have created through evolution, couldn't he? Well, you know, in one sense, it is true. God could have created through evolution because God can do anything. But if God had created through evolution, he'd have told us. Instead, I'd rather believe that God created in the way that he said he created. We should not come to the Bible in any other way. 
I know that my friend Carl Kirby is going to be speaking in this area in April, and I urge you to go and hear him, and I'll just steal his thunder on one thing, because he often says this in his talks. He says, I used to say to God, I've read what you said, God, but now I'm going to tell you what you really meant. We should never approach scripture like that, should we? should never approach scripture like that. It's as if Adam and Eve believed that God has created the world to be perfect. What a perfect world, because it's very good. A very good world, yet under their feet, in this very good world, are millions of years worth of fossils, of pain, death, killing, disease, and struggle. Fossils could not have come into the world before Adam's sin. They couldn't. Human beings cannot be the product of millions of years of death, disease, and evolution and struggle. Because death came into the world because of Adam's sin. That's what we read in Romans. So the fossils did not appear before Adam's sin. The fossils must have appeared after Adam's sin. And the best candidate for that is a worldwide flood. There was a worldwide flood. The the world was once covered completely in water that produced lots of sediment and therefore trapped an awful lot of creatures in the sediment. And to steal steal the saying from another uh, uh, creationist friend of mine, uh, Ken Ham, he often says that if there was a worldwide flood, what would you expect to find? Well, you'd expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Except he would say it in an Australian accent. Billions of dead things laid down in water, buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. That's how he says it. And that's what you find. And that's the evidence of the flood. The fossils came from the flood. But here's some more evidence from the Bible. You see, there could not have been death, disease and suffering before Adam's sin because of what the Bible tells us about the future. Because if I'm going to tell you something about the future, then I believe what this says here is true. That one day God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death. Are you looking forward to a world in which there's no more death? Or maybe you're looking forward to a world in which there's no more curse, as it says in Revelation. But if you believe that there were always millions and millions of years of death, disease and destruction, there was never a perfect world in the past where there was no death and no curse, then what right have you got to look forward to a world in the future when there's no death and no curse? What is your hope? If you believe in evolution and try and believe the Bible as well, what hope have you got? Because if there was never a perfect world in the past, spoiled by the disobedience of Adam, you have no perfect world in the future to look forward to. And you can give up hope now. But I've got hope. Because I believe there will be a day when there is no more death. And no more curse. Because the Bible tells me, the same Bible that tells me that God created a world that was perfect. And sin and death came into the world because of the sin of one man. Do you see the importance of believing this? We have to look at everything through the lens of the Bible. All scientific evidence. We have to look at things like dinosaurs through the lens of the Bible. We have to look at fossils through the lens of the Bible. Grand Canyon, uh, um, anthropology, uh, all these things we look at through the lens of the Bible to understand them all. We have to look at morality and salvation through the Bible. I give talks on every one of those things to expand those things. You know, the fact that in the human race there is only one race. Only one race. Do you know that? Adam's race. 
There is actually only one skin color, by the way. It's a skin color called melanin. It's just that some of us have a lot of it and some of us have not so much, but there's only one color, different shades. There is only one race. And the Bible tells us that because we're all descended from Adam. Amen? We're all descended from Adam, which is a good job. Because that means we're all related. You are my relatives. This is a family gathering. I know I'm from the ugly side of the family, but we're all related. (laughs) Which is just as well, because do you know, do you know that you can only be redeemed by a relative? The Old Testament tells you that. You can only be redeemed by a relative. If you are simply an evolved ape man, and you could have evolved from a different ape man to me, more to the point, a different ape man from Jesus, Jesus cannot redeem you. I know a little bit about redemption. My grandfather used to gamble. He used to lose money. He never, ever won. My grandmother would come home from work. She used to work every hour God gave her to try and earn money when my grandfather was out of work during the Depression. And she would come home and she would find there was something missing in the house. Maybe one day she came home, there was a clock missing. A really good family heirloom. It was missing. Why? Because my grandfather had taken it down to the pawn shop to get money, which he then gambled on the horses and had lost. So what did my grandmother have to do? She'd worked all day at the mill. She had to put her coat back on and go back to the mill and work another shift to earn enough money to go down to the pawn shop and redeem that family heirloom. That's what the word redemption means. Satan left me at the pawn shop of history. And Jesus Christ paid the ransom, paid the redemption ticket to give me eternal life. And he did it for you because he's your relative. And you think this isn't important. Let's preach Jesus. I preach Jesus. I preach Jesus all the time. That's what it's about. Which brings me then finally to the words of Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about all this? And he had a lot to say about it. When he was asked about marriage, he talked about Adam and Eve. And he said that Adam and Eve were from the beginning, at the beginning. Using a phrase that only can possibly mean the beginning of the world. And then he was asked about the prophets. And he talked about the blood of Abel shed from the foundation of the world. Abel from the foundation of the world. Here's a time chart. Supposing we take the supposed 13.4 billion years that the universe is supposed to have been around from the Big Bang, and let's, let's just scale it down to 24 hours. On that scale, the cosmos would have started at the beginning, but human beings would have evolved there five seconds before the final midnight. Does that fit with the words of Jesus who says that Adam, the first man, was from the beginning and Abel from the foundation of the world? It doesn't. It does not fit with the words of Jesus. And if we're followers of Jesus, we'd better fit things with the words of Jesus. We'd better pay attention to what he says. So let's look at the Bible's 6,000 years of history. The Bible gives us 6,000 years of history. Let's scale that to 24 hours. The cosmos starts from the beginning again. But on this scale, Adam would have been there at 35 hundredths of a second after the first midnight. And Abel, I'm sorry, I should have coloured that black, I do apologise. Abel would have been 42 seconds after the first midnight. Does that fit with the words of Jesus? 
Yes, it does. Adam from the beginning, Abel from the foundation of the world. So the Bible's time scale fits with what Jesus says. And he should know, because the Bible tells us it's for Jesus, by Jesus, and through Jesus that everything was made that was made. It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who did the creating. And we need to remember that everything needs to start from a foundation of Genesis. Everything needs to start from a foundation of Genesis. Now, God gave Adam one command in the garden. Just one command. We've got ten commandments. God gave Adam one command. Do you know what that command was? Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day that you eat it, you will surely die. I wonder if you know what the phrase surely die means, by the way. In Hebrew, it says... On the day you eat it, you will die, die. That's what it says. It uses the Hebrew word muth for death twice. You will die, die. And it means in dying, you will die. It means the process of death will start. Adam may not have dropped dead instantly when he ate the fruits, but the process of death started instantly. And eventually it would lead to him getting old and dying at the age of 930. You might think that's a long time. 930 years, that's a long time. It's nothing compared to the eternity that Adam was supposed to be able to live. Nothing at all. So Adam broke the commandment by eating the fruit, which of course, as you may well know, was probably not necessarily an apple. That's why our artist here has drawn it looking like a hand grenade. Because of the explosive effects that it had down through history. Everything we learn is based on the book of Genesis. Everything we learn. God made a world that was perfect, but we sinned and damaged it. And it's our sin that brought death and disease into the world. And that's why we have a world of contrasts. It's why we have a world in which there is both joy and sorrow. A world in which there is both life and death. A world in which there is both love and hate. Both are there. Do you know what clothes Adam and Eve wore? Anyone say fig leaves? He didn't wear fig leaves very long. Why did they wear fig leaves? Because they knew they were naked. They tried to cover their own shame by their own efforts. But they couldn't wear fig leaves for very long. Once God had dealt with them, God then gave them new clothes, clothes of skin. And in order to give them clothes of skin, God had to kill one of the animals that he had made. In order to cover their sin and their shame, blood had to be shed. Do you see? And you think this isn't important. You think it doesn't matter whether we believe Genesis or not. Just preach Jesus Christ. I am preaching Jesus Christ. Because there was one came later whose blood was shed perfectly once for all. Did Adam change his clothes at all? If he had changed his clothes once every year, which is more frequently than my teenage son, (laughs) he would still have had to kill 930 animals. And he still died. But Jesus Christ's blood was shed perfectly to cover my sin completely. Not just to cover it, but to take it away. So that I can be clean and I can look forward to a world in which there is no more death and no more curse. After the world's first sin, 
God did not leave us hopeless. Instead, he said to the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's God saying? He's promising the seed of the woman. How can you have the seed of the woman? Because the seed comes from the man. How can you have the seed of the woman? Because God is telling them that one day there would come somebody who had an earthly mother but had no earthly father. Who could that possibly be? There's only one candidate, Jesus Christ. Not only that, but Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, must be the person who's actually speaking here. This is Jesus himself telling them that he would one day put on human form as the seed of the woman and that in the process of crushing the head of the serpent, his heel would be bruised, he would be damaged by it. This is the first statement of the gospel and it's given by God to you and me immediately after the first sin was committed. Doesn't that tell you something about the love and the mercy of God? That he would not leave us in our sins. It's there for anyone who repents and puts their trust in him. It's there for anyone who repents and puts their trust in him. It's not there if you don't repent, don't put, trust in, don't put your trust in him. In that case, you bear your own sins. And if you bear your own sins, the only possible place for that is eternal punishment in hell forever. But Jesus Christ has died that those who put their trust in him can have eternal life and can have their sins washed away. Creation or evolution, who cares? I care. I care because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening.